welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. I am your host, Dr. Sean Lord. I am the author of Stop Aging in Its Tracks and the owner of Concierge Physical Therapy, a sports medicine physical therapy practice with multiple locations in Massachusetts. Please sit back and enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, so we are officially live. Uh, so here we go. So All right, great. Dr. Phil Leahy, Worcester County Orthopedics, orthopedic surgeon, uh, team doctor for St. John's High School, Holy Cross uh, College. And uh, Phil, I'll let you kind of, you know, take it away, introduce yourself a little bit more. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm one of the team doctors for Holy Cross. You know, I, we, we have a great team of uh, physicians, including Dr. Vin, who's our head team physician, my partner. Uh, he's a former Holy Cross football player and, and our longtime partner here at Worcester County Orthopedics. Uh, we also have uh, Dr. Brian Bisconi, who helps us out a lot from UMass, and uh, Dr. Jay Broadhurst, who handles the primary care side. Great, awesome uh, sports medicine team up there, along with the great trainers uh, who help us out every day up there. So uh, I don't want to forget them. Yeah, absolutely. That's an all-star, uh, that's an all-star crew up there. So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, great. So we are talking all things needed today. So any attendees who join us, uh, feel free to just type your questions in the box. Uh, and we'll get to them, you know, a little bit later in the talk. But, uh, you know, let's dive right in, Phil. So I think one of the big things that, you know, patients come in to see me with in particular beyond, you know, the diagnostic ACL tear, MCL tear, um, the things that are pretty easy to treat because we know what's going on. We have MRI confirmation. It's just that everyday, you know, nagging, achy knee pain. So the number one question that I get at, at parties or, you know, up at the club or whatever is when do I do something about it? So how do you have that conversation colloquially and how do you like kind of work through that with your patients? Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough. Knee pain is really common. I mean, really common. If you look at big studies, it's like a huge percentage of the population every year will have some knee pain that they either see a doctor for or don't even see a doctor for, you know, just on their own. They just treat it with a little Tylenol or Advil or something. So yeah, when is it, when does it rise to the level of needing care from a physician? And I think the rule of thumb that I tell people to like just in daily life, not even in the office necessarily, because then the, the choice has already been made. They're already seeing me. But for my friends and family, I think that when it starts to affect your ability to do the things you normally do, like if you're doing everything normal and you notice a little bit of soreness here and there, that's probably not too bad. And it's probably pretty normal to feel that once in a while, especially as we get into our fifties and sixties, certainly beyond. But if you, if you're saying, geez, my knee is bothering me so much that I don't, I can't really play golf the way I normally do. I have to, I certainly have to take a cart. I can't walk or I can't exercise the way I normally do. I can't go for my walks. I can't use a treadmill. I'm having a hard time, you know, at the gym, uh, you know, working out the way I normally do. And I'm going to have to change my activities to handle this knee problem that I'm having. That's when I think you you should probably at least have somebody take a look at it or, or talk to you know, maybe even just your primary care, but, but starting somewhere with a, with a, a medical person to try to get a sense of what's, what's going on. Is this worth exploring further? Yeah. And let's talk through just by age range, right? So let's say you're, you know, you know, I, let's break it down like 20 to 40 and then maybe like 40, 40 to 50 to me is like that gray area, right? So yeah. you're old enough to have degeneration, but you're not really, you're, and you're still thinking maybe, I mean, and I'll let you kind of dive into this and, and your thought process and your brain, you know, the patellofemoral pain syndrome, which we both know is a diagnosis of exclusion. We kind of go there and we're like, ah, you know, it's just mechanical, whatever. Right. You know, versus really, you know, kind of that older, that older knee 50 plus. So I want you to kind of talk about 
diagnostically what goes through your brain when people come in with just knee pain, they're 20 to 40 years old or even younger. Yep. Uh, well, the younger is even a different, that's a different can of worms. We can get it. Yeah, we can talk about that. I, I treat kids as, as young as like, you know, first, second grade. So, um, so yeah, so the first thing I, I do, and I, I think this is important, all doctors probably do this to a certain degree, degree but you got to listen to the patient. You know, you, I really want to listen to their story, hear their complaints, find out how this all started, find out if it was from an injury or it just kind of started on its own randomly. Um, that tells us a lot of information, just getting the history. And so opening your ears can really make, make a huge difference. If you're in that 20 to 40 range, you had a totally normal knee, and then all of a sudden your knee starts hurting, was there an injury? And often there is at that age. You know, it's, it's pretty rare to get sort of random knee pain that starts up, you wake up one morning, your knee's sore, you have no idea why. That can be a little more common as we get into our... All right, perfect. All right, so we were talking about uh, 20 to 40 year olds and then like yeah. kind of 50 plus days. So let's dive, dive right in there. So, so with the 20 to 40 year olds, there's often an injury history. And if there is, that keys me into thinking, okay, otherwise normal knee, uh, but something happened. And so then, then it's down to physical exam after we hear the story. And so if the physical exam then starts to reveal certain things and, and there's certain kind of physical exam kind of findings, pain along the joint line when we press along the edge of the joint uh, or that pain with sort of twisting the lower leg. You know, if you turn the ankle and the foot and it causes pain up in the knee, um, you know, those are kind of classic findings for a meniscus tear. And so then we're thinking more, hey, maybe this isn't just arthritis. X-rays are also a, a piece of the puzzle. You know, if you look at an X-ray, the X-rays look pretty normal. Uh, the joint spaces are pretty well preserved. There's some good cartilage there. Um, but we have pain in a specific area, that really clues me into thinking there's a problem in that specific area that's likely to be a meniscus tear. Um, you know, we're also checking in on the physical exam for things like ligament injuries. So if there's any instability in the knee, we're gonna feel that when we stress the knee in different directions. And so we're gonna feel if there's MCL laxity or looseness, that's gonna be a signal that there's an MCL sprain or something like that. If the ligaments all check out and they feel solid and the the, um, uh, the knee feels stable, but we, we have that reproducible pain in a certain area. Then a lot of times our next step, you know, cause well, just to back up a little bit, the x-rays are great at looking at the bones and we're gonna, it's like a picture of the skeleton. We can make some guesses or inferences about the cartilage by looking at the space between the bones, but we really can't see the cartilage in detail. Uh, and so in order to do that, our next step is often to get an MRI. And so MRI imaging is going to look at the soft tissues and look at the cartilage in a lot of detail. And we're going to be able to see meniscus tears. We're also going to take a look at the ligaments and see that any damage or problem with the ligaments. And, uh, and it's going to give us a nice three-dimensional view of the whole inside of the knee. And I think a great point there too, Phil, is just, you know, so, and a lot of patients ask me, right? So a lot of times they go from your physical exam, you know, so it, it starts, you know, either an MOI, you know, I, I tripped and fell or soccer, I was playing soccer and, you know, twist it, you know, contact or non-contact, then they go see you, right? Or they come see me and then, then they go see you and they come back to me. 
Um, so the, the common question is, right, when do I get an MRI? So we, that's common with the knee, the low back and the shoulder, but specifically for the knee, after you send somebody to a PT, you know, how long are you expecting them to, to do PT before, you know, that you, you send for an MRI or do you kind of just send for an MRI right away or it just depends? So I, I probably jump to it maybe a little earlier than some, I think primary cares tend to tend to be a little more conservative. I feel more confident sending a patient to physical therapy with a very specific diagnosis. Yeah. I don't really like sending them to PT with just knee pain as the diagnosis. Cause that doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't really tell you, tell the therapist what needs to be done. Right. And um, while we can make some guesses and some, we can say, well, it's probably this. I'd rather say with more confidence, okay, we know that it's a meniscus tear and we're going to try some PT first, or we know it's arthritis or we know what's happening. And so I tend to trigger the MRI when there's certain specific findings, both in the story from the patient and the physical exam. And so if the x-rays look pretty good, the physical exam is consistent with a meniscus tear or a cartilage tear or a ligament tear, uh, like something structural. If there's some structural things on the physical exam that I'm concerned about, uh, and they have a story, especially of a, of a history of an injury, you know, and, and those three things together, I'm going to say, yeah, we need to know structurally how the knee looks on the inside. And that's going to be done by with an MRI. You know, and I think that's helpful for us as PTs too, because when, when I look at a script with PFPS on it or for, you know, for the crowd, it's, you know, that's just patellofemoral pain syndrome. That's somebody who hasn't had an MRI 99% of the time, because it's, you know, all of their exam findings and, and what Dr. Phil was talking about was, you know, he's looking at the MCL, the ACL, the LCL, he's looking at, you know, the patella and the mobility there. Um, and everything's coming back pretty normal, but the patient is still having pain and there may not have been an MOI or, you know, a mechanism, right? A, a bend and a, a twist or a fall. So, you know, that's, you know, if you can send me, hey, listen, Sean, this guy has an MCL or this guy has, uh, you know, medial meniscus tear, which we know PT will help, you know, a lot, right? Depending on their age and, and whatever. Um, other, other comorbidities or factors. But meniscus tears. You know, I would say, depending on age, right? The a young meniscus tear is going to do fine on PT unless it's a really nasty type tear. So let's talk about that too, because that's another common um, theme, right? So we get a lot of meniscus tears better, and there's a lot of research showing that you know VMO strengthening, the classic PT, um, good manual therapy will help with that. What is your thought process on just going in and do like a scope for for that meniscus tear? Like, what are you looking at in the different? Like, is there a certain type of tear? at more success with or yeah so morphology of the tear is important and uh so looking at types of tears if there's large displaced pieces of the meniscus that are flipped down underneath sorry I'm like putting my hands in front of my face but um if that there's a big piece of the meniscus that's really flipped over and displaced bucket handle tears where there's a big flap of the tissue that's flipped over you know, tears like that I think do much better with the surgery because there's there's going to be some mechanical blocks to movement that, that won't really be helped by physical therapy. Um, but that's not, those are relatively rare. I mean, we see many more kind of small uh, tears, kind of horizontal tears that are sort of in plane with the meniscus or a little partial tear on the outer edge. Um, and those, those do often do well with, uh, with physical therapy. And I think that there's certainly a role for trying that first with these kind of smaller tears. Um, and, uh, and I will offer that certainly to patients. It also depends on the patient's preference too. Some patients are, have been dealing with the pain for six months and it's getting worse and it's, they want, they're ready for the surgery. And I think it's appropriate at that point. 
Yeah. Other patients, it's like it's only been like two or three weeks, and you know yeah. the pain is kind of it's there, but it's not that bad. And I say, well, let's let's not jump to surgery as the first thing we try. Sure. You know, we'll try some physical therapy first and see if it works. Mm-hmm. And if it does, mm-hmm. that's great. We can avoid a surgery. Yeah, you know, I, I think a good piece to that too is, you know, you're exactly right. So that 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 tear that you know is just it's a flap tear. Or it's and what you're, you know, the mechanical piece to it, right? So when you're bending, and this is kind of what I tell patients, you know, because we've got a CrossFit next door, and uh, you know, a lot of patients are new to working out that come to see us, especially with knee pain, is that I just say don't bend your knees past 90 degrees when you're doing a squat, right? Yeah. You know, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what sort of advice you're giving folks that, that do have a diagnostic, you know, a diagnosed meniscus tear? Yeah. So if they have a tear and we're going to try to do the non-operative route, yeah. Avoiding deep knee flexion, especially weight bearing knee flexion, where you're going into a squat or a crouch, that's going to really aggravate the tear. It can even make the tear worse. You can make a tear further torn, you know, you can extend the, the lesion. Uh, so yeah, I think you got to be really careful about as you get past 90 with weight, um, that's a dangerous position for the knee. It's a high stress position for the knee. And so, yeah, you definitely got to watch out for that. And I, I have that conversation with patients sometimes. So let's talk about too. So another, you know, another key kind of, um, I don't know, diagnosis of, of kind of that 20 to 40 year old, maybe runner or kind of like weekend warrior is sort of that chondromalacia patella, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. And that'll kind of dive us right into the hemi knees and the total knees. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about that and what that patient looks like. Yep. Yeah. So patellofemoral chondromalacia is really common. We see it in patients that are younger a lot. The cartilage under the kneecap uh, is probably the, probably an area where we see the most early degenerative changes in people. And it's very common, especially in women. Uh, it has to do with sort of knee alignment in the female knee. Uh, there's sort of some, some alignment issues that can predispose women to getting this a little earlier than most guys, although guys can get it too. And uh, what can happen is that cartilage over time rubbing against itself or the kneecap rubbing in its groove is going to start to wear down some of that cartilage. And if the kneecap is a little out of alignment from its groove, it's going to increase the stress in certain particular areas of that knee. And so if you put all the stress on the outside half of the kneecap and it's really rubbing hard because of a tight IT band or tight lateral structures, um, that will tend to keep the kneecap out of alignment and put a lot of stress on that cartilage. Well, a lot of times we see this start as teenagers, you know, that like uh, 13, 14 year olds will come in with anterior knee pain, especially uh, young female athletes. MRI is totally normal. Uh, the pain is mostly present with running or stairs or, you know, hills and things like that. And, you know, we diagnose them with patellofemoral malalignment or patellofemoral syndrome. The cartilage looks normal when you're 14, 15. You fast forward that person when they're 30 over the years, that cartilage has started to get roughened and worn down a little bit from that malalignment. And so you can start to get some uh, inflammation that results with that the cartilage protects our, our the bone underneath. The bone doesn't like it if there's not a good cushion. It then sets off this chain of, of inflammation in your knee that can cause a lot of pain. And so the cartilage is like, I sometimes say it's like the enamel on your teeth. It, once it goes, it's not coming back. Uh, there's no way to regrow it really. And we can talk about that a little bit. There are some, some ways to kind of regrow it. And there's some ways that we kind of work around that. But for the most part, wearing away of the cartilage is gonna be a process that we can't reverse. And, um, and so once that kind of starts, 
you have to try to figure out ways to get the knee to feel better. In other ways, you can't can't do it just by regrowing cartilage. What is your advice to those, you know, the parents of those 14, 15 year olds, you know, as they, you know, as they age? Yeah. So, so it's really important to identify this issue early on and work on the ways to keep the knee in good alignment. So uh, a lot of times physical therapy is the key to that. And so we often will hook them up with therapy, uh, you know, early on uh, to work on loosening and, and stretching the lateral structure around the knee, uh, strengthening the VMO, the, the quad muscles to kind of win that tug of war over the kneecap uh, and try to realign the kneecap in its, in its groove and working on the hip especially and looking at things like arch of your foot and how your foot steps and how the alignment of your foot and ankle then lead to internal rotation of the hip and malalignment at the kneecap. So the Ankle, foot, or ankle, knee, and hip are all aligned, and they're all part of that kind of process. They all go kind of hand in hand, and this sort of the classic, uh, you know, sort of in-toeing kind of uh, valgus kind of heel, foot, a bad patellar alignment, and weak hips uh, that all kind of go together. I'm sure you see this all the time, um, but I think it's identifying it and addressing it early is key. Yeah, there's a sort of a, I say she's a famous PT, but she, you know, there's a book of sort of like PT diagnosis. Um, and, and it's, her name is Shirley Saruman. And she talks about a lower extremity medial rotation syndrome. And it yeah. starts with the foot, you know, and as that foot pronates and collapses, the subtalar joint or the ankle joint for people, you know, not med non-medical people collapses, everything, the foot and arch collapses and everything turns in. And yes. when turn in, there's a lot of stress on the inside of the joint, on the inside of the knee, and then the same thing in, on the inside of the hip and where the labrum is. And, and it actually throws you into lumbar extension too, the whole, the whole movement. Right. And that's why it's so important to find somebody, you know, that's in your area that knows how to really look from head to toe, right? And not just at a knee joint, poke around a little bit. You need somebody who's going to look at the foot, look at the knee, look at the hip and understand how everything works together. So maybe that's an orthotic, maybe that's you know, in combination with core, hip, knee, and ankle stability and strength. That's, you know, typically when I treat a knee and it's a young athlete, I'm barely doing any knee exercise. A lot of it's core, a lot of it's hip, and a lot of it's balance, you know, and I'm releasing IT, you know, whatever's tight poster chain IT band, um, to the back of the legs uh, and, the, and the plant, even the plantar fascia, it's all going to roll. Um, but I think that's a great point, you know, work in conjunction with a PT at that age, because they're so young. And they're malleable. They've got room to grow, right? I mean, they've got space. Like at, at 50, you know, you've lived with that knee and you've done nothing about it. Now you're, you know, so let's talk about that, right? So now you're 50 years old, you've lived an active life. You know, maybe you've had, you know, and again, we can kind of, so much we could talk about, but the female athlete, right? So that female athlete, you know, in, in 1970 or 1980, even who wasn't properly diagnosed or didn't even know kind of the, the options that we have today, let's talk about that 50 year old runner, right. And what their knees potentially look like and, and what you're thinking in terms of total knee, hemi knee and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so a lot of it's determined by x-rays and sort of looking at alignment on, on films. Uh, so when we start to get arthritis early on in the story and we can, I think maybe knee replacement partial and total, we can get to maybe as sort of the, a little bit later in the, chain of events, because there's a bunch of things we can do for arthritis before that, but I think we should talk about that too. 
So if we're getting starting to get arthritis, you know, people get into their 50s, maybe 60s, still very active, and people are being are staying active much later in life. I, I see people in their 70s that are runners and very active, but certainly people in their 50s and 60s. If you're starting to get arthritis and you're an active person, or even if you're not active, but but maybe you once were, um, so how do we? What do we do with that? So. A lot of it will depend on the degree of arthritis. So the cartilage, arthritis is the wearing down of cartilage in the knee. And so a lot of people think of arthritis as something that's growing on the bones or growing in the joint, like barnacles or something like that, but it's really not. It's the wearing away of the cartilage and the resulting inflammation that, that happens because of that. And so if the arthritis is severe, if it's bone on bone, we can try some things right off the bat. Although, you know, when it's down to bone, we're going to be talking about knee replacement probably sooner than later. Yep. Um, and the pattern of cartilage loss will determine what kind of knee replacement we do. Um, if it's not bone on bone, it's kind of early, you know, and if the joint space is getting narrow, the cartilage is thinned out, but it's not completely gone. Maybe you start to have a little bone spur there as a signal of some arthritis, a little stress on the bone. You know, that's when we talk about things like uh, injections. Uh, cortisone uh, is one of those, probably most commonly used. Uh, we use a lot of cortisone um, for those early to moderate arthritis patients. Um, and basically, what cortisone is, is just a really strong anti inflammatory. It's a steroid, it works locally in the joint. It doesn't have too much of an effect on the rest of the body, although it can elevate blood sugar in diabetic patients. Uh, if they have kind of hard to control diabetes. But in the vast majority of patients, it's very safe. Uh, there's been some bad press about cortisone over the last uh, five years or so. Um, there's been a few isolated studies that have said, yeah, there are some risks with cortisone. You know, there's risks of things like further damage to the joint, stuff like that. Generally speaking, I reassure my patients by saying, we're not doing cortisone in a completely normal joint. If your joint is totally healthy, normal cartilage, we're not doing cortisone. It's, it's not appropriate. So we're doing cortisone injections in patients where the cartilage is already damaged. The joint is already in trouble. And so this is a way to try to get your knee to feel less inflamed and allow you to be more active and stay in good shape um, for longer. You know, And so it's not, a, it's not really a Band-Aid. Guys don't wanna do it sometimes because they say, well, it's just a Band-Aid. Why don't we just go to the, get my knee replaced? That's the ultimate solution. Uh, but it's, it really gets to the root of inflammation. And if you're not really bone on bone, then you probably shouldn't be getting a knee replacement anyway. So you don't want to jump to a knee replacement surgery before you're really ready for it. Um, and so cortisone can be a great tool. It's, I, I find it to be very helpful. And it's, there are definitely people that don't respond to it. Uh, people you put the cortisone in, it doesn't really do much. Maybe it helps for three days. Um, when that happens, there's lots of other choices. And so, you know, there's things like visco supplements, these gel injections that we use, Synvisc, there's like a half a dozen different brands, Uflexa, Hyalgin, Gelsin, uh, Synvisc. Yep. Um, and those can be helpful for some patients too. Um, they're kind of a lubricating gel that goes in and kind of lubricates the surfaces in there. And I have many patients that where the cortisone has failed, those seem to have helped. Um, but again, so not for everybody. And you usually start with cortisone and then, uh, now are you picking a compartment fill? Like, are you saying, okay, I'm going to go medially, I'm going to go laterally or just where no. arthritis? No, I've, heard of, I've heard of guys doing that, but the knee is all one compartment. Okay. Uh, 
we think of it functionally as different compartments and the cartilage responds in different ways, medial compartment, cartilage, lateral compartment, patellofemoral. But the, it, I shouldn't say it's all one compartment, three compartments, one space. And so it doesn't really matter how you get the medicine in. If you go through the front door, the side door, the upstairs window, uh, the medicine's all going to get into the joint and it's going to flow around the entire joint and get in everywhere it needs to go. Wonderful. So that's, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, cause that's something we get a lot from patients, right. Is, you know, when do I go get that cortisone shot? And, yeah. you know, for me, and, and you can correct me, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what you're, but people typically, I'm sure when they see you, they're in a lot of pain. Yeah. You know, same thing with me. There's, they're still in pain, you know, but they, you know, sometimes we're fighting through it. And, you know, when I educate even my, my younger staff, you know, when should I send this person back to Dr. Lady to get a cortisone shot? Typically for me, it's the pain. You know, you're in seven, eight out of 10 pain. You can't do anything. Like go get a shot. It's not going to be the worst thing in the world. You know, right. that's usually the 50 plus. Yeah, I'd say 40, 40, 45 plus. Now let's talk about, you know, now we're kind of jumping back and forth with age ranges, but cortisone shots in younger individuals in the knee. And even yeah. But we can we can talk about the shoulder, you know. Again. Shoulder's a little different. Yeah, shoulder's a little different because it's not necessarily in the joint. Um, when we're putting cortisone into a joint, we do want to be somewhat careful. Uh, you know, it, I think in younger patients, it's rare. I have done it in a few situations where people have had patellofemoral chondromalacia really flared up, swollen knee, you know, and very, very painful. We'll sometimes do some cortisone. Generally, it's, it's a one time, maybe two times total kind of thing. I, a lot of times we'll do it just as sort of a uh, as a diagnostic tool more than anything else. We'll, we'll do it sort of to see if it helps you. And if it does, we know that the pain is coming from that area and that it's not something else. If the pain comes back, if it works well, and then the pain comes back, I think then often in younger patients, I'm moving on to the gel injections, the visco supplements much quicker because I think they're safer for the joint long-term. Talk about some of the risks to the joint of the cortisone for like a younger individual. Yeah, you know, there's some studies that show like repeated cortisone injections over a long amount of time. So if you're 25 or 30 and you're having knee problems at that age, we can't do cortisone every six months for 20 years. That's too much. It's good. It, so what happens is that the cartilage cells, and some of it may actually be related to the marcaine or the lidocaine that we use, the numbing medicine at the same time as the cortisone. It may not actually be the cortisone itself. It might be the the numbing medicine that goes in with it, that is toxic to the cartilage cells. And so if you give the cells enough time to recover, three months plus for most people, um, it is safe to do here and there. But it's if you keep doing it over and over again, and especially if you do it in rapid succession, like every month or every couple of weeks for a little while, it's not good for the cartilage cells. And you can lead to some additional cartilage damage if you're not careful. So I feel like that's kind of where it gets sticky, like the pro athlete type situation or that college athlete trying to get to the meat, you know, and I think that's where, yeah. you know, as physician, you know, as a physician, you kind of got to look at every situation individually. Like, let's say, you know, you've got, you know, let's just use Edelman as, it is, as, as an example, right? So we had knee problems. He's trying to get, he got one more season, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to need a, he's going to need a total knee at some point, I'm sure. Right. So, so it's a little different in professional athletes. Cause if you have millions of dollars on the line as the athlete, and you say, I don't care if I need a knee replacement in five years or two years or even one year. I need to get through this season because I need to get this contract and there's millions on the line. I think, you know, 
you have to weigh the costs and benefits and, and somebody like that, you might say, okay, the, the benefit may outweigh the, the risks. And um, for an everyday, more average person like me, I mean, <laughs> I would say no way, it's not worth it. But, um, but yeah, this, those are the kind of the issues that come into play in sports medicine that are unique. And, um, you know, it's similar to uh, sometimes, you know, a senior in college uh, heading into a spring, their final spring season in a sport, They've got some issues, patellofemoral chondromalacia or something like that. They just want to get through the last three months of their senior year in order to finish out their college career. Beyond that, they're not going to play lacrosse professionally or whatever. Um, and they just they know that they want to be active, but they're they're done with the sport after three months. That's a situation where maybe you'd, you'd have a conversation about, well, it might be possible, might be appropriate. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, let's talk a little bit about the synvisc and um, and those sort of you know the sort of the I call it it's almost like a just a layer of car, like pseudo cartilage, right? Let's talk about what the yeah. um, you know the client outcomes are with that and and how long people should experience relief. Okay, yeah, good question. So, um, so yeah, so first of all, there's there's like maybe a dozen different brands out there. They're all about the same. There's never been a big study to show that any one particular brand is better than the other. So whether it's Hyalgin, Synvisc, OrthoVisc, Uflexa, there's a million of them, it doesn't matter. Um, they all have slightly different characteristics, but I think it's probably a moot point. Um, what it really is, is at its most fundamental, is uh, hyaluronic acid, which is the molecule that makes up cartilage. So it's a very safe thing to put into the joint because it's the same molecule that's already in there. You're not putting any sort of medication in there or some sort of a uh, chemical that's going to disrupt the cartilage cells. And what it does when it goes in is it doesn't really replace the cartilage. It, I, it, I think it really works more like a lubrication of the cartilage. Um, it may provide a little bit of a hydraulic cushion while it's in there, but it's not in there forever. And it does kind of get processed through the body and the body probably absorbs it over the course of a couple months. It's... Uh, it can often last for three, four, five, six months at a time. And I have had patients, many patients that have had it last longer than six months, uh, the effects. And so generally speaking, insurance, we, we most often will get insurance to cover it. And then we order it in the mail. So it does take a couple of weeks to get in. Uh, and then we start it and it's a series of three shots for most formulations. There's come a couple formulations for just a single shot, but we usually try to break it up into three shots once a week for three weeks in a row. And uh, after the three weeks, we say, hey, let's see how this works for you. And uh, uh, sorry. Um, if my phone disconnects, we're, we're gonna have some problems, but <laughs> I think it'll be okay. Um, if, uh, so we'll see how it goes. And so often patients will have some good relief uh, from uh, the pain and the inflammation that they've been having for, for many months at a time, especially in early to moderate arthritis. If it's really end-stage arthritis, totally bone-on-bone, bone, it rarely works well. Uh, I can't say never, but doesn't usually work well. But for the people who still have some cartilage there, I think it really does help. It also seems to have some anti-inflammatory effects, which we don't totally understand. We think it may change out the joint fluid a little bit. So instead of all those inflammatory cytokines, it kind of changes out that joint fluid and seems to get the whole knee to be less inflamed. Nice. Almost like an oil change for the knee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. 
Um, that's interesting. So does your body absorb kind of the, the cytokines and that sort of thing? Is that how it just kind of, yeah, yeah. Those get broken down and absorbed. And if, if the, if you break that inflammatory cycle, your body will reprocess all that stuff and you're constantly making joint fluid. And so if the joint is less inflamed, the new joint fluid that's coming in and produced is, has, is less full of those kind of inflammatory chemicals. So does it kind of miss mix with the synovial fluid? Is that what it, is that what yes. it, Yep. Um, let's talk about, so I know it's been described to me, you know, and there's a lot of cartilage breakdown. I've never, you know, been inside of a knee. Right. But can you talk about what it kind of looks like, you know, like a Rocky road or something like that? Like, what does that contemplation patella look like? And what does it look like? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I should have, I should have brought some pictures or something to show you. Cause I, I have been inside of a knee. So yeah, it's, um, so cartilage is that kind of smooth stuff. If you think about the end of a chicken bone, that kind of smooth whitish stuff on the end, uh, and it, when you're, we're young, it's really smooth, firm stuff. And it's hard to kind of, uh, you know, damage really. It's very, very durable. As we get older, it dries out a little bit. It starts to flake. And so the first things you see are these kind of flaky fronds that start to kind of lift off the surface. And then over time, it starts to wear thin. Those fronds go away. The actual cartilage starts to kind of break up and you start to get patches that are kind of chunks missing. And it's usually in the weight bearing portions of the joint. So on the, on the femoral condyle and so the round part of the end of the femur under the kneecap is a classic area. And so eventually those chunks start to kind of coalesce and you start to get sections where there's no cartilage left at all. And you start to see the bone underneath. And so you start to get the sort of yellowy kind of bone surface, subchondral bone that you start to see. And that's when you start to really feel that grinding and clicking and stuff like that when, when patients have arthritis. Now let's talk about the pain, right? So pain associated with, um, with, with, you know, cause I, my knees both, you know, they both, uh, click, right. Or they not click, but you know, they grind, you know, positive, yeah, yeah. but I don't have pain. Right. So talk through, you know, the neural kind of the neural end of it and how like if you get into a joint you're like oh my god this is really bad like what are you looking at yeah so i mean some of it's a little bit unpredictable but uh because some people have knee pain and knees that don't look that bad you know and and you get inside and you're like geez i'm surprised they're having this much pain so everybody's a little bit different the clicking and grinding that you get under your kneecap in the front of the knee that's non-painful is probably early chondromalacia you know the surfaces are no longer totally smooth but you know, with just gentle range of motion, they're just gliding past each other, you know, so it's sort of two rough surfaces that are rubbing against each other. As you start to get that kind of roughening on the weight bearing surfaces, and you start to get that real pressing down on that cartilage surface, and that cushion really isn't there, the bone underneath is sensitive. And so it's going to start to cause inflammation. It's going to be painful if you step on an exposed piece of the bone where it's not covered by cartilage anymore. And then there's the, the soreness that you get just from swelling. So the, the, the bone responds, the joint responds to that by causing swelling. The swelling makes the knee sore too. So everybody's a little different. You know, pain is sort of a unique, uh, uniquely experienced kind of thing, but, but, uh, but that's pretty reliably going to be uncomfortable when you get that uh, weight-bearing surface affected. You know, and so that we talked to, you know, it's, talk about this a little bit, but just weight gain and knee pain, you know, I think that there's definitely a direct correlation between adiposity and, um, you yeah. Know, and knee pain. Yeah. Unfortunately that, yeah. I mean, it's a big issue. 
these days. Every, I mean, it has been for decades, really. But um, yeah, the, uh, weight gain is a part of it. So people definitely who put on weight notice their knees feel worse. And, and, and on the flip side of that, there's been some good studies to show that even losing five or 10 pounds can make your knees feel better. You know, maybe not completely pain-free, but it takes some of the weight off your knees. And so, yeah, we, I always encourage patients to, to uh, you know, patients with early to moderate arthritis, if it's possible to lose weight, yeah, it's part of the whole, part of the whole picture of treatment. Yeah. It's, it's tough, but it's, yeah. And it's tough to coach too, right? Because it's such a, it's, it's really the holistic piece that I think, you know, in my office and in your office, we're focused, you know, it's probably a little bit easier for me to maybe hey, say, Hey, listen, I know a great nutritionist Val, just at least yeah. with her and just have her, but I can't, you know, when I have an hour, an hour and a half with somebody, I can't talk about, you know, what to eat for dinner. You know, it's just not, you know, I need that hour to fix your knee. <laughs> you know, so like, I think when we talk about the whole person and looking head to toe, you know, working in, you know, a nutritionist in, in that sort of capacity might, might be helpful. So, so yeah, I mean, in orthopedics, we are admittedly not great at treating the whole person. We're, we're very good at treating a specific injury or a diagnosis like arthritis. I mean, you have an hour and a half, I have 15 minutes. <laughs> so per patient. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, so, you know, we have a very limited focus and if we're laser focused on stuff, we can treat things effectively, but yeah, we miss the big picture a lot. And I think that's where primary care can come in, uh, certainly. Uh, and you guys can, can be a part of that, uh, puzzle too, but, but yeah, seeing a nutritionist and, um, uh, and that, that can be a big part of this for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, let's talk about those operations. So what yeah. are you- most commonly feel like what is your kind of like who do you like who are you like who are you seeing most who is that patient you're seeing for knee pain most often what what's the most common procedure you do i would say the most common thing that i do is our knee arthroscopy surgeries for meniscus tears so that's more common than probably uh knee replacement uh typically people in their 40s and 50s sometimes 60s but uh people who uh are really doing normal things most of the time, I would say 60% of the time, probably normal activities. You know, they, they crouch down to pick up something off the floor. They feel a little crunch in their knee or they, you know, they're outside and they step on, on a bump on the, in the yard and they just kind of feel something tweak in the knee. Um, sometimes people don't have a good in- injury story at all, but they know at some point in the last week, it just suddenly got a lot worse. And it was probably something they've done a million times, but it just happened to catch the meniscus in the wrong way and tear the cartilage. And, uh, and that, you know, we get an MRI, we take a look, we see the cartilage is torn. And then we start talking about, you know, usually knee arthroscopy at that point. Knee scopes, great surgery. It's short, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of actual surgery, you know, day surgery for sure. And you're probably only at the facility, whether it's a hospital or a surgery center for about a couple hours. Um, two tiny incisions about the size of a centimeter, maybe less than an inch in the front of the knee. We look inside with a camera. We look around the whole joint, take pictures of everything to kind of document all the cartilage, the surface cartilage under the kneecap, all these things that we've been talking about. And then for the meniscus tear, we look for that and then take out the torn piece, leaving behind as much good meniscus as we can. And so and that's pretty much it. Then we're out a couple stitches and, uh, and we're, we're off, off and running. I don't restrict weight bearing. I don't, I give people crutches, but honestly, I think most of my patients may use crutches for a day or two. You're allowed to put weight on it immediately. Total recovery time is kind of like three to six weeks before you get back to everything. 
but you're allowed to put weight on. I tell people the first week, you know, really ice and elevate a ton, take the rest of the week off from work. Um, you know, people shouldn't be going back to a physical job for at least a couple of, you know, maybe three, four weeks. Uh, desk job might be a week, you know, back to work, but, um, but a lot of people are feeling a lot better at two, three weeks. Um, yeah. I found, you know, even with many scopes, they're so well done nowadays. And, and maybe you can talk about the difference maybe in tools too, in the last 10 years, I was finding 10 years ago when I first started that I would see, you know, knee scopes for probably six to eight weeks for PT. And now I feel like it's maybe four to six weeks, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have many patients that come in at two weeks and they say, my range of motion is really back. I feel like I get running again and I let them just do it on their own. Uh, I'd say 60% of my patients I send to physical therapy for at least a few weeks. Yeah. Three, four weeks, maybe five. You know, I don't I, know. I don't know why it's shorter now. I mean, maybe that's a better question for my father. Uh, you know, why, why his, his patients took so long 20 years ago, but yeah. So, you know, I, I think too, Phil, you know, I think it depends like how the patient presented prior to, you know, if somebody who's, you know, been with, have, they're going to have VMO atrophy, you know, if yeah. they've for, a lot, for a long time, they're going to have, you know, if they've had inflammation, you know, that's somebody who's going to benefit from really probably pre-op and post-op. But, um, yeah. you know, I think that the atrophy piece and how long they've suffered probably plays into it. But if you know, I mean, if you're walking in the backyard and you kind of, you know, just, or even on the golf course, you kind of twist it a little bit and then it, you know, flames up, you know, that's probably not, and it's just been a couple of weeks and it's a month overall, probably not somebody. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not, not it. It's the patients we are going to do that surgery on are usually people who have been struggling with it for a while. They gave it a chance. It might've. So a lot of times the pattern is like, it's really bad for a week or two, then it settles down and then it kind of plateaus and where it plateaus is what determines whether or not we need to do surgery. If it plateaus and it's like pretty good, you might feel it a little bit. That's fine. You don't need surgery for that. But if, if it settles down, but it plateaus at a place where you're like, I can't do anything. I can't exercise. I can't play, get back to playing golf. And it's been like a couple months. That's when we're, we're probably going to be doing surgery. So let's talk about this. So my uncle literally calls me yesterday. He says, Sean, went to go see my orthopedic or maybe it was a primary care. And uh, they said, uh, you know, it looks like you got a meniscus tear. Here's a brace. You're good. <laughs> so what is your thought on bracing and its role in meniscus tears and, and knee pain in general? I don't find that there's really a role for bracing with meniscus tears, um, really at all. I mean, I think there's always, it's always okay to try like an over-the-counter CVS or Walgreens compression sleeve, you know, the little cutout for the kneecap and it's got like a Tommy Copper thing, you know, Tommy Copper is too expensive, but just something you get at CVS to give you a little compression, maybe help control swelling, give you a little of that proprioception, but I mean, really a brace is a, a real brace is for replacing or augmenting stability for a torn ligament. Um, you know, or if you've got an unstable knee, you know, you're going to need a brace to kind of support the knee. The meniscus is a structure on the inside. That's a cushion. So the brace is going to do anything for that. So I don't, I'm, I'm kind of anti-brace for meniscus tears, unless you want to try like a little sleeve on your own. Yeah. I mean, I'm straight anti-brace too on that because what's, you know, it's going to turn off the, you know, the muscles from acting too, because a brace is a passive, it's a passive support. Right. And, you know, I feel like that's, I mean, it's definitely not a solution, but, but, you know, I asked him if it had, if it had metal in it, you know, that's another piece too. So, you know, is it, you know, I didn't do his exam. Maybe he has a little medial, um, maybe he's got some, a little bit of laxity in there too, but you know, 50 years old, I don't want you to just put on a brace, you know, let's, let's do a little and, 
you know, I think the pathway needs to be strength, mobility, see if that yeah. helps up, unless there's a diagnosed, you know, real, you know, nasty meniscus tear. Right. Um, but I think that's a big thing too, Phil, is that people need to know they have the option to go to you and just get it done, you know, a scope done. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no need if you're really suffering with a meniscus tear and it's painful all day long or with consistently with certain activities that you need to get done. Um, yeah, you know, th this is a very treatable injury that really people do typically very well with. And I mean, really there's always exceptions. Some people, there's complications sometimes, but those are rare. This is a very safe surgery, uh, low complication rate, really low, tiny incisions, fast recovery time. I mean, it's a good surgery and it, it helps a lot of people. So there's no need to suffer. And really I respect that. I mean, the, our primary care colleagues are, are phenomenal and they are fundamentally important in this whole team approach, but um, there's nothing wrong with seeing an orthopedic guy if you have a problem with the joint. And so if your knee uh, is bothering you, it might be time to see an orthopedic guy. Yeah. And just go, you can go straight, <clears throat> straight there, especially if you've got a PPO, you know, PPO. Yeah. Plan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, let's talk about, you know, kind of the advanced, you know, aging knee, right? So the quad tendon repairs, that sort of thing. And then, you know, we just touched on that for a second. Do you do many quad tendon repairs, Phil? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, those are more like, we see a few of those every winter from slips and falls on ice and things like that, but they can happen with any kind of activity. Uh, sometimes we see it more uh, because people are staying active so much longer in life. You know, we see it more with guys in their fifties and sixties playing softball or basketball or racquetball, um, you know, on their quad tendon will rupture. And it's a pretty common injury. It can be pretty devastating to the knee. Uh, we can get them back, but it's a long haul. And the knee often is never exactly the same after a quad tendon rupture. I mean, that's a massive muscle group to just have suddenly disconnect. So, um, but it's, it's repairable and it, we treat it like an acute injury. People know typically right away when it happens. And uh, once we are able to see a patient with that, the diagnosis is pretty quick and we're gonna wanna repair it quickly. Um, usually within a couple weeks of the injury, we're going to try to sew that back down to the patella, back down to the kneecap, bring that uh, tendon back down, sew it into place, and start the healing process. So, how do you do that? Because that's a really thick. That's going to be a pretty thick tendon, huh? So, do you, are you anchor? Uh, not anchors, actually. So, what we often do is we do some whip stitches. So, we sew suture, really heavy, thick cord, uh, into the tendon. And so there's usually four strands that come out. So kind of up and down and four strands. And then we drill three tunnels through the kneecap. So very narrow tunnels, usually with a small drill bit through the kneecap. We bring the sutures down through the kneecap and then tie them on the bottom. So kind of over a bony bridge. And so you have the, the tendon comes right back down and attaches onto the kneecap itself. Nice. Now, how long do you feel like that takes to really take uh, well, so we protect the, the flexion. We sort of limit flexion and protect the knee for a good six weeks. And during that time, we, we don't really want to bend the knee much past, say, 30, 45 degrees. And then after six weeks, we start to kind of regain range of motion because at that point, we feel like the healing has probably occurred and it's safer to, uh, to start to flex the knee more and try to get back your range of motion. And then that's, that's where the, the challenges sometimes occur is that six to 12 week to 16 week kind of time frame where you guys are working on the range of motion and it can be tough sometimes. You know, I think, you know, like smokers, right. You immediately double that, 
that rehab time. You know, that's kind of the way that I look at it. Um, yep. That's always kind of a weird variable. Are there any other variables that you're thinking, like when you see somebody, you know, who's partial weight bearing, not even for a quad tendon repair, but any sort of knee repair? Um, anything um, else? Yeah, I mean, patella tendon repairs are very similar. They, they often rupture too uh, and, and act, they, they sort of are a similar rehab and similar surgery. Um, yeah, smoking is one of the big ones. A diabetic patients have some interesting issues, sometimes uh, higher risk for infection. Um, the healing rates for diabetic patients can be a little bit lower. Um, so smoking and diabetes are the two things that we really think about a lot. Um, yeah, I always tell my patients who smoke, like literally every drag you take on the cigarette, the blood vessels constrict and that limits the healing. So even if you can just cut back a little bit, anything helps. Like you don't need to go cold Turkey and quit smoking. Like for the first time in your life, any amount of cutting back can help. And so I, I try to really encourage patients to do that. Especially, you know, well, pre-op and post-op, but oh, yeah. yeah. let's talk about, uh, let's talk about total knees. Yeah, absolutely. So knee replacement, you know, certainly, uh, is a, is a big part of my practice. And tr when I first started, it was all totally replaced. I didn't do any partial knees. We'll talk about partial knees in a minute, but totally replacement is a big surgery. Um, I always tell my patients, don't take it lightly. Uh, some guys will want to come in. They've had knee pain for six months. They have some arthritis on the x-rays, but they haven't really tried anything else, including like, you know, they, they don't like Advil. They're not, they're not pill. They're not a pill person. You know, I don't like Advil. Um, but that's not a time to do a knee replacement. The time to do a knee replacement is when you've tried everything else. Uh, maybe physical therapy, possibly bracing, certainly injections, uh, and nothing else has worked. And you're having daily pain that's affecting your ability to do the things you want to do. Uh, not necessarily doing affecting everything you have to do, but if you want to be more active, if you want to go out for walks more often, if you find that uh, interacting with your younger family members is difficult, if you're avoiding going to the store, uh, those kind of things. That's, you know, that's a signal that let's try to get you feeling better with a knee replacement because we want you to stay active. We want people to keep moving. That's the most important thing is keep moving. Once you shut it down and you say, all right, I, I'm not going to go to the store anymore. I'm not going to hang out with my family. I'm not going to go for walks. The whole body starts to have become problematic. You get back pain and your hips get sore and everything gets bad. So, and this is, you see this all the time, I'm sure. Yeah. But it's, um, but yeah, so the knee replacement, so what, what a knee replacement is, is basically we go in and we trim away all the, all the joint surfaces, uh, and then cement onto the bone metal components that kind of cover the bone that goes for the end of the femur, the thigh bone, and at the top of your shin bone, the tibia. And then we put a plastic spacer in between. And so it's a very smooth metal on plastic, uh, articulation and it's, uh, basically replaces the entire joint. Uh, we, I typically also replace the undersurface of the kneecap. Some guys, especially in Europe, they don't do that. And there's some, there's some movement here in the United States to kind of avoid that, but I, I typically replace the kneecap as well. Do you find that the undersurface of the kneecap, is it, is it typically the trochlear, is it the groove that's deteriorated or is it both like underneath the kneecap and the, uh, uh I would say it's, I would say it's both. And I can say from my experience with arthroscopy, we definitely see it in both places. It can be a little different. I would say the lateral facet of the patella is very common. And the, and the trochlear groove can be a, an area where there's some problems. 
Yeah, so it's so now is that if you're replacing the underneath of the uh, patella, is that and that's metal? Is there and then there's metal? I'm assuming on the condyle. So actually, the undersurface of the kneecap is replaced by a plastic dome, uh, and so that's a plastic piece that goes on the metal femoral component. So it's all metal to plastic. There's no, there should be no metal touching metal. Nice, nice. And then this plastic is the spacer in between, right? Yep, yep. Now. And this might, this is going to be an aside, but so I've seen knees that literally just may be infected. Um, this is more of like the, at the hospital and it works at the hospital, but uh, that was just a spacer. Have you ever seen it? Have you done anything like that? Or yeah. Uh, like a cement spacer? It was either a plastic, you know, I'm not sure what kind of spacer. It just said yeah. this person doesn't have a total joint. It's because it was. Yeah. yeah. So yes, that, so that is typically what's done when you have an infected implant. So one of the things we worry about enormously for knee replacement is infections. And so if an infection gets deep and it gets onto the metal or the plastic, our body doesn't have the ability to fight off the bacteria once it gets onto the metal because the metal doesn't have a blood supply. There's no way to get the white blood cells onto the metal. And so it just grows like crazy. And then if, so if you do get a deep infection into the implant, we got to take the implant out completely and then put in an antibiotic spacer for a period of time so we can clear the infection. No. For, fortunately, that's rare. Um, you know, and I think it's, you see it more with more complicated patients, patients with, with more medical issues, it can happen a little bit more often. Um, but, but thank goodness, it, it's typically quite rare, but, uh, but it is one of the more dreaded complications for us because it, it makes for a much more complicated course and it's uh, tough on the patient for sure. Yeah, I've been, <laughs> I always remember reading those charts. And I'm like, do I walk walk with this person or get them? No, yeah. You know, you know, we're not we're not doing much for a little bit, a little bit with that person. But uh, let's talk about. Uh, so I think you know somebody who's thinking about getting a total knee, right? So some people are afraid, and this is what I hear in my clinic. They're you know they're afraid, they're nervous, they don't want to have a big operation, um, but they're in a lot of pain, you know, and and yeah. some. I'm kind of coaching them. Hey, listen, you know, we're doing everything we can in here. And I kind of know, I mean, I've been doing this for a while. I know when people are going to get to the point where they can't do another scope or they can't do a scope. They're 60, 65 years old. Scope's not going to do anything. It's really, so what in your brain, like who's that perfect person for the total name? Yeah. So yeah, the, a lot of people are looking for like shorter, quicker fixes, like a scope. The days of doing arthroscopy for arthritis are over. That that was a big thing in the late 90s and even early 2000s, but a bunch of studies showed that that was not helpful. And so that a lot of guys will say, yeah, I had a scope and they cleaned out the arthritis. There's no such thing. It, it was shorthand for whatever they were doing back then, but um, you can't clean it out because it's not it's just the cartilage isn't there. So um, the scope isn't an option in, that, in those patients. I think I tell patients that, well, first of all, I always, I never want to pressure a patient to do a big surgery like that. I, I think it would be wrong. And if a surgeon, if a patient talks to a surgeon, they're like putting a lot of pressure to do the surgery, you got to do it now or something like that. That's not a, that's not a great way to handle that situation. I think I, I would say most patients are going to know when they're ready and it really has to be a patient driven decision. And they, they're going to say, I tell my patients all the time, you're going to probably tell me when you're ready before I tell you. And so if you've tried other things, if you've done all those other treatments that we've talked about, medicines, injections, bracing, physical therapy, and it's a daily problem for you that's causing a disruption to your life, and you're in a lot of pain 
and it's preventing you from doing the things you, you want to do, then I think that it's totally reasonable to do the surgery at that point. But you also have to be sort of mentally ready to work hard in physical therapy and be able to put up with a little bit of pain at the beginning and probably more than just a little. Uh, the first couple of weeks are, are quite sore. You know, it's, it's not fun. Now we can manage pain pretty successfully with some pain medicine, not excessive amounts, but enough pain medicine to make it manageable. But as long as you get through those first couple of rocky weeks, you know, people really usually do very, very well. And the results are often very good. The other thing is a lot of people will talk to their friends or family about it. And so they get a, they get a sample of two or three people. And, you know, one of the three people said it was great, but the other two said, well, it's been pretty tough and that's it. You know, they, that's their, their big study. <laughs> um, three. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, cool. The N of three or N of one. I, 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 oh, my friend had a knee replacement. He did terrible. So I'm not going to do it. Um, you know, and I would just caution you, everybody's different. And there are certainly some patients that don't do well, but the like really 90%, approximately 90% of, of patients in most big studies are happy that they did it, you know, and while that does leave, you know, 5% of patients that have some sort of complication and maybe another 5% that there was no complication, they just weren't really happy with the results you know, either some residual pain or some stiffness, you know, I think the vast majority of people are very happy with the result. What should people expect other than pain, you know, in the first few weeks after a total knee? Yeah. So early on, uh, most patients are going to be doing physical therapy at home while they can't really get out as easily. And so for the first week or so, uh, we do a lot of in-home therapy. Uh, and that's especially now these days, much more common. We used to send a lot of patients to rehab you know, rehab facility, skilled nursing facility, almost, uh, I'll say not no, nobody, but very few patients are going to skilled nursing facilities or rehab facilities after the surgery. Most people are going home with visiting nurses and therapists coming to the house. So it's a much more comfortable experience for most people. And so they're going to be working hard to kind of start to bend the knee more and try to get it straight. And so while the therapist is working on it, it's, it's going to be somewhat swollen and it's gonna be uh, sore, the incision heals up usually pretty nicely, but that's a concern in the first few days, week. Um, and so basically the therapist is gonna to start to kind of try to bend and extend the knee. That's the big thing is just getting the motion back early on. Um, and so once we get the motion back a little later, and especially as they transition to outpatient therapy, that's when you really start to work on strengthening. And uh, so I, I tell patients a lot of time, the first like six weeks or so working on the range of motion, second six weeks working on strengthening. And so by 10 to 12 weeks out, people are getting back feeling like, you know, close to three months, they're getting back to most of their normal activities pretty comfortably. It's probably more like six months before it really feels like your knee and you're just not thinking about it anymore. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, it's great for people to know, Phil, because I think a lot of people with that fear, they just keep putting it off, keep putting it off. But, you know, mm -hmm. I think they know going into it, it's going to be three weeks of pain, you know, really yeah. Six to eight weeks, you know, is what I tell people. But yeah, yeah, you know, and then it after gets that, better. it gets better and better as you go along. You know, I think is, is if people kind of can hear this talk and can learn that and understand that, and the and the total knee is the right choice for them. I think that kind of helps alleviate some of that fear of going yeah. and the complications and everything else, DVT, whatever else it might be. Um, what exactly are you looking for from PT for that first few weeks? in terms of like zero degrees extension, flexion, what are you looking at? 
Yeah, so trying to get out to full extension is really important early on. Many people have a little bit of a hard time getting that last five degrees um, before their first post-operative appointment with me, which is usually about two weeks after the surgery. I'll see patients two, two and a half weeks. Um, so they, if we can get out as straight as you can so that it's, if you don't get the extension early on, it's very hard to get it later. And so uh, it's really important to work hard in the first few weeks to kind of get that leg straight. For the bending, we hoped at about two weeks that people can get to about 90 degrees. I have found that if you can get to 90 at two weeks, you're probably going to be able to get the rest of it back, usually another 30 degrees or so, you know, because 120 is kind of the, the number that we sort of use as a goal most often. So that in another, you know, over the course of the next three weeks or so, you get the last 30 degrees. And, um, and so that's, that's the kind of rough range that we like to use. Now, if you go into the surgery with a stiff knee, you're going to come out with a somewhat stiff knee. It's not like it's a, a totally new knee that you can move around because all the soft tissues are the same. You know, the, the ligamentous structures, the muscles are all still the same muscles. So if you go in and you haven't bent your knee past 90 in 10 years, you're, you might get a little bit more. We often tell patients, we probably will get another 10 degrees, but it won't go back to 120. I mean, you know, so that's, there's only so much we can do. <laughs> you know, so that's an interesting point, right? So we, you know, I talk to my therapist all the time, you know, is, is it joint or is it muscular, right? What's causing the lack of range of motion? And a lot of times it's both, right? But I think that's really interesting. You know, if they're, you need 90 degrees to go up and down stairs, right? So a lot, I think a lot of people, you know, if they don't have that, they're, they're in trouble, but yes. um, do you have a CPM? You know, we've gone away from CPM uh, er, very early in my career. We we're still using it. There was a few studies that came out saying that they didn't really, uh, it didn't really improve people's range of motion much at longer term, you know, like six weeks, 12 weeks, and certainly not at six months. Um, but, uh, and so insurances, a lot of insurances stopped paying for it. And so we basically have gone away from it and said, you know, it's probably not necessary. If we can get patients in to see a therapist earlier, they tend to do better anyway. And so I think working with a human being usually works better than the machine. Yeah, you know, I think it's just, I think self-efficacy, especially in the early onset of it is huge too. And just kind of getting a good, if you can get good home care to come in and it's always fine because, you know, unfortunately the the poor home care therapists don't have all the tools. They don't have an Alter-G treadmill. They don't have all of the tools that, that we have to help train somebody you know they don't have a full gym at their disposal so usually they're they're traveling around with some theraband <laughs> you know yeah yeah so we kind of we kind of get through those first yeah that week or two but i always tell my patients you're going to make a little leap when you get out to the outpatient setting it's motivating you're out of the house there's other people working hard around you they have great equipment so i i encourage people to get out and go to outpatient pt as quickly as possible you know, it's just so tough, Phil, because when I get something, I inherit a knee that's just, it's lacking five degrees extension or, you know, sometimes seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, you know, like what were you doing for the past two weeks? <laughs> it just drives you nuts, you know, I know. but uh, so start sending them my way immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, when they're two, and I, I say it specifically because those two weeks are really, really important. If they, if it's not their right knee, you know, you know, they, they should be able to drive, but even if you get somebody to drive you too, if you're young, oh, yeah. You know, and again, I mean, a lot of times people have a nurse, they might have a nursing component to it too, that they medically, they can't come see an outpatient PT. So I don't, you know, I don't mean that. No, no, of course, yeah. But, you know, I really feel like those first two weeks, it's important for people to understand. You can't just loaf around on your couch with a pillow underneath your knee 
just because it feels better. You know, you need to get your knee into some extension. And, and that's the conversation. When I did home care, that was the conversation I'd, I'd have with my patients is you got to put your, your leg, maybe prop it up on an ottoman and put, you know, something on it, you know, for 10 minutes, every couple hours, you know, just yeah. to get it and keep it straight. That's the other thing. It's like the, the little bits all day long that are really important. Consistency. So we, we talk about stretching, right? So it's, it's an, you know, for one minute every single day, right? So the creep takes place over a period of time. If you, you know, they say that if, if you can stretch and, you know, you might have different, different, uh, different um, strategies yourself, but, you know, if you can stretch a muscle for a minute and you do it seven days a week, the outcomes in terms of creep, that muscle creep are going to be much, much better if you can do it than if you missed even two days. So like yep. it's consistency of it, um, especially for muscle length, that's so important. But um, anyways, that's a complete aside. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about the hemis because I really haven't had a ton of luck with rehabbing them. I've had not many. I've maybe had 10 or 20 that we've done or I've done personally over the course of my career. And they just, they're foggy. You know, that some do really well and some are just awful, <laughs> like really bad. That's interesting. So yeah, so I have, I've had a, I've had a great experience over the last two and a half years doing partial knee replacement. And I only do medial partial knees. There are guys that will do lateral partial knees. So the, the most common compartment I see that's affected when it's by itself is the medial compartment. That's the inside half of the knee. Um, there are other guys that will do patellofemoral partial knees with just, just replacing the patellofemoral joint. That gets a little specialized. There's total joint specialists that do kind of those more specialized type procedures you know, guys uh, that have a background in that training. I, I stick to the medial side of the joint and uh, I use a mobile bearing spacer. So instead of the plastic spacer being locked into place, my plastic spacer is move, movable. It kind of glides back and forth. And so I think that that has, that's a little change in the technology that I think has really changed the outcomes. Uh, it used to be 90s, early 2000s, the, the partial knees got a really bad rap because they went downhill quickly and people needed to convert to a total knee fast. And so it was like, why am I going to do a partial knee if I'm just going to need to do a total knee in five years? That doesn't make any sense. Let's just do the total knee. And so I, I didn't train in my residency training. I didn't train how to do partial knees. My father never did them, didn't believe in them. But I think it's because the results were bad back then. They didn't have good results. That changed in the early 2000s, kind of 2005, 2010 kind of range. They started to introduce these mobile bearing uh, partial knee replacements and the results are better. There's some good research. There was a top cat study. That's the acronym, like total uh, or partial knee arthroplasty something. And uh, they looked at long-term outcomes at 15 years uh, with the mobile bearing spacer partial knee replacement, the one they used was the Oxford um, knee replacement. They had 94% still going strong in 15 years. At 20 years, it was 91%. So basically those numbers approach total knee replacement success levels. You know, total knees only last 15 to 20 years. So uh, the results of these mobile bearing ones, I think are better. And I think that the technology made a little leap in the 21st century. And I think Due to that, I was more comfortable uh, using them. And so my experience so far is that the range of motion is much easier to get back. So we're only replacing that inside part of the knee. We're not touching the kneecap, really. We're not touching the lateral side. You got to pick the right patient. 
So the patient selection is absolutely key. They have to have an intact ACL. The lateral structures have to be fine. The patella has to be mostly fine. Um, if almost all the arthritis is isolated to that inside half of the knee, uh, we replace that section. It seems like so the also the, the rates of complications are lower, needing blood transfusion way lower, uh, blood clots, DVTs way lower, infection way lower. And so I have also found that just patients have an easier recovery. I've had patients playing golf at like six weeks, eight weeks out um, after a partial knee replacement. I had a guy who played 18 holes six weeks off after surgery. And that's a little unusual. Not everybody like that. I tell most of my patients, it's probably about a two month recovery instead of three. And the range of motion I have found to be dramatically easier to get back. Not universal, but whereas the total knee replacements, they struggle. It's it's the first few weeks. It's not easy. It's, it's a real challenge. Most people are up to it and can do it. The partial knees for me mostly have been like, Hey, at, at two weeks, I feel like I've got a lot of my range of motion back at six weeks. It's back. I mean, it's for almost everybody. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, that's just my personal experience, you know, and, and everybody there's different, different brands of replacements out there. There's still some static, um, uh, uh, implants that don't have that mobile bearing, static bearing, um, could be, you know, the individual patients too, you know, uh, some patients are just sort of more ready to do that PT. Other patients are not quite as ready, but I've been, I've had some really great success with it. And I, I've, if, if it's at all possible that a patient can get one or the other, I recommend the partial when I can, it's gotta be the right patient, but, but when they can do a partial, the results are, are better, I think. Well, I think that's, you know, if people have it as an option, right, I think if you can go out and do what, you, like, the whole reason that people go get these surgeries to begin with is because they can't do what they love to do, right? So, right. you know, and that's one piece too that I, we didn't really talk about. So in terms of the ACL, are you getting, you're, are you snipping the ACL during that total knee? During a total knee, we do. Yeah. So we, we, I, you remove the ACL. That's pretty universal for most systems. The oh. PCL is different. And that's, we don't always take that. I leave the PCL, uh, in place when I can, we sometimes have to sacrifice it if the knee is too tight. Uh, but most of the time we try to leave the PCL in place. That's a little bit more, that's kind of 50, 50. There's other surgeons who take it out automatically every time. Um, but the design, what's that again? Keeping the LCL and MCL. Uh, yes. Yeah. MCL, LCL, we leave in place almost always. Those are, those are really important to kind of keep this, the side to side stability. Um, the, I'm sorry, say that again. What keeps the A to P uh, stability, the front to back? Yeah, so, so the PCL keeps the, that posterior stability intact if you keep it in place. If you don't have a PCL, if you have to sacrifice that, there's a special type of PCL implant that goes in and has a box in the middle and a little post on the plastic spacer that kind of locks into the box. And so it, it's, it keeps it more stable that way. So it, there's design implications if you take the PCL out. Um, so yeah. Anteriorly dislocate like a tip, like on a, a tibia on a fibia. So, so yeah. So the, the balance, the, the, yeah, uh, the balance inflection is really, yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm talking over it. Um, yeah. So that's something that we can, we, we look for and control during the surgery. So we are constantly kind of checking stability of the joint during the surgery. And if it feels loose, we actually have to increase the spacer in the, in the, in the knee replacement to kind of make it more solid and stable. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Um, what other questions do you think people would, you know, if they're considering getting a total knee, what other questions do you commonly field? Just as we kind of wrap this up. Uh, yeah, good question. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting to be about that time. Um, we've been talking for a while. Uh, we haven't even touched AC. We haven't touched half of the, you know. OC. No, no. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's, there's this, the whole sports medicine side of it, and then there's the arthritis side of it, and they're really kind of different, and there's a lot to talk about. But I, it's, it's been great. We've t touched on a lot of good things. We'll have to have a part two about just the sports med piece, like the, or the younger. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's ACL is like, I, we could do a whole talk on just ACL. But, um, but yeah, so questions that people come in. I mean, most of the time it's, it's how long am I going to be out of work? How long, how disruptive to my life is this going to be? How much help am I going to need in the first couple of weeks? You know, and I think for physical jobs, uh, I tell people it's going to be three months. You know, if you, if you have a construction type job or if you're on your feet all day, every day, um, physical job, which, you know, uh, I probably say the, the majority of my patients come in with more physical type jobs. Um, you know, it's going to be probably three months before you get back to that. It's not that you can't get back to it, but it's probably going to be at least three months before you're doing any sort of uh, extended time on your feet at work. Um, now, if you work at a desk job, I've had some people go back at, at two months and or even six weeks, and they feel pretty good at that point if they can get in and out of the building easily. And, um, you know, the drive to work isn't a factor. Uh, then, you know, some people get back to work at six weeks. Uh, but, you know, People need some help in the first couple of weeks, especially, you know, it's good to have somebody staying with you. Uh, if you have a spouse or a, a child, adult child that can help you out, you know, just kind of getting, getting the simple things, you know, around the house kind of set up, you know, making sure you can uh, have meals prepared for you. If you're, if you need that in the first couple of days, even, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, it's a big deal, but like I said, you get through those first few days, maybe a week, two weeks and all of a sudden you're like, Hey, I'm moving around a little bit better. You can, we get people up and walking right away. I mean, the day of surgery, they're up and walking. So, you know, it's not easy. You need help, but there's not a lot of time laying in bed, you know? Right. So there's, you know, so your weight bearing is tolerated so they can move around and uh, right you know, away. Get, you, get you right back up on that knee. So, yep. so let's wrap this up. I, I think I've kept it for almost an hour and a half. So uh, with a little bit of technical, technical thing. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we could talk all day about, about this, but, uh, and, and all the other topics, but let's just kind of touch on, you know, a, a couple takeaways, uh, from today. And, uh, you know, I think the first one that at least for me, I took away was that, you know, if you've got a meniscus tear, you know, you just really need to have a, a solid orthopedic consult, um, to see really where that path should go. I really think that all meniscus tears, um, if they don't come through me first should, should go through you. You know, because I think if you can fix somebody and provide them relief, you know, within a month, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's yeah. a solid option. It, it, people, you don't have to suffer with a meniscus tear forever. Right, right. That's true. I, I totally agree. I think, you know, uh, if you're having sharp pain, if, if the knee pain is really disruptive to what you want to do, it's time to see an orthopedic guy or girl. Yes, exactly. And then, uh, you know, my second takeaway would be <clears throat> just... You know, I think it's really important for people to understand that they do have the option to do a hemi knee or hemi knee or if, if they're a candidate for it. And if they are, you know, I think if you can go back to golf or whatever you love to do at a shorter timeline than a total, you know, it sounds like the outcomes are unbelievable after 15 years. So in 15 years is a good, that's a good stint. That's not, you know, five years or 10. That's a, that's like a pretty powerful study. What was the end in that study? Oh, I mean, this was a huge study in the Lancet 
they've been they've had a couple different papers they produced from the study. The most recent ones were from 2019, 2020. Um, tens of thousands. I think the the N was like in the 20,000 range because the partial needs have been do, been done in England for like decades. They they started doing this in the late 90s, much more much earlier than we've been doing in the United States. We haven't even talked about Connor Malaysia, the uh, knee microfracture surgeries. Maybe we'll talk about yeah. that. Yeah, we don't. I don't do a ton of that, but there is a role for that. We can always touch on it another time. But but yeah, this the microfracture is a little bit more rare. But it's yeah. yeah. When I was, we used to see them a lot more in Boston, probably about you know seven eight years ago. But I haven't seen one honestly in probably in two two and a half years here, anyways. Yeah. yeah. Not nearly as often as I see you know totals and you know scopes and everything. Uh, how about a takeaway from you? Anything uh, you want to kind of leave people with? No, I mean, I, well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the big thing to remember is that our, my goal, especially coming from a sports medicine background is to keep people active. You know, we want to allow you to be as active as you can comfortably be. And it, that's going to help your heart, your lungs, your back, you know, everything in your life is going to be better if you can get out and move around. And so uh, when it comes to knee pain, it can be very disabling very quickly and really shut you down. So uh, if you're having a lot of knee pain and, uh, you know, either you don't know why or you do know why, but you're not sure what to do about it, you know, definitely talk to primary care, physical, physical therapist that, you know, or definitely come and see an orthopedic person. And, and uh, you know, we can kind of get to the bottom of it. And there's often a lot of really good treatment options. I mean, as, as you can see, we, we barely scratch the surface. There's a million different ways to treat things. And there's often a, a solution that's really good for, for you. I love that. You know, so get a professional opinion, you know, don't wait, you know, don't ask your friends how their total knees went. You know, the, you know, two friends, <laughs> say, ah, I don't, I want to avoid that because what happens is as you age, then you have balance issues and things like that. And, you know, if you fall and, you know, break a hip or, you know, they're just, let's just not, we could go down that road, but, but let's just, uh, sure. There are bad statistics there. So if you have any pain, just call and get an opinion. And, and especially as men, you need to call the doctor. Just call, call the doctor, and uh, you know, hopefully we can do something to help. But uh, yeah, we'll never make we'll never make you do anything. It's just it's you know giving you options, lots of options. Exactly, just options are good. It's nice to have options. But uh, right. I just want to say thanks, Phil, for um, you know for joining me for a second time here and. Uh, you know, really had a good time with this talk, but, uh, you know, if you, if you're, I'm going to leave your information at the, in the description of this, uh, this podcast and the webinar, but, uh, if people, if you just want to leave a, a quick blip, uh, Phil, how people can reach out to you again, if they're watching this. Oh yeah. So yeah. Uh, Worcester ortho, uh, com is, is our website and that's for Worcester County orthopedics. Uh, and we're in Worcester on the South side near Crompton park, but we also, I operate at St. Vincent hospital and the surgery center in Shrewsbury. And um, yeah, our phone number is 508-755-0240. And um, yeah, reach out if, if you'd like to get in touch with us. A lot of insurances will allow you to see an orthopedic specialist uh, right away. Some require primary care referral and that's okay. We can help kind of uh, help you navigate that too. We have a great staff uh, in the front of our office that can help with all that stuff. So yeah. And if I were to just leave, you know, one more piece, you know, if, if you do have a, you know, you have an orthopedic problem, just call Phil directly because they're, like he said, at their office can secure a primary care referral 99% of the time, I'm sure. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for the time, Phil. And uh, no, great time with you. And uh, we'll do this soon. Sound good? Uh, great. Hey, thank you very much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Sounds good, Phil. Talk to you soon. See ya. Thanks again for joining us for this week's Hooked on Health podcast. 
Please check out our website in the link below. Whether you're listening on Spotify or on our page, you can reach me personally by email for more information. 